we are a people under orders. And that reality is implied in a common title that we use for Jesus. We often call Jesus Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. And that word Lord means that He calls the shots. And when He tells us something to do, if He's truly our Lord, we do it. We are a people under orders because Jesus is our Lord. And there is a wonderful passage in God's Word that we're going to look at this morning that helps us to understand what it looks like for God's people to obey orders. And we find it in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, starting in verse 10. So turn there with me. We are continuing a study through this Old Testament book, Joshua, chapter 1, verse 10. I'm going to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Thank you, choir and music team, for the music this morning. Awesome. I appreciate Reverend Travis. He's a reverend now. Where is he? He's a reverend somewhere. Good job. The music was just better this morning. I don't know what it was. I think it was just, just kidding, just kidding. Joshua chapter 1, verse 10, the Bible says, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp, and command the people, prepare your provisions For within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives a rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, what a joy to gather together with this faith family to turn our mind's attention and our heart's affection to you. Lord, we are are so excited about all that you have done in our lives and so excited about what you're going to do in our lives. You are good and everything you do is good. And we are expectant, Lord, as we come to this moment of Bible study, And we ask you to help us. By your Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we would see the truths of Scripture and understand the truths of Scripture and have the inclination to obey the truths of Scripture. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. Lord, have your way in our midst. May Jesus be exalted in this place. 
let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we began our study through the book of Joshua, we saw that after Moses died, the Lord reminded Joshua that he was next in line for leadership. And he would be the one that would lead the nation of Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land, the land that God had given his people, to drive out the pagan nations living there so that Israel could enjoy this inheritance, this promised land. And so we see the the call and the commissioning of Joshua reiterated early in chapter 1. And now, starting in verse 10, we see Joshua taking command. And Joshua begins to give orders so that the people can be mobilized and can go together over the Jordan to possess the land. And the idea of command or commandments is found all throughout the passage we read together. As a matter of fact, in verses 10 through 18, we see the word command or commanded six times. And so that's a major thing what's happening here. Joshua has his orders from the Lord, and now Joshua is giving orders to the people that he is leading so they can do what God has called them to do. So this passage is about marching orders. And there's much we can learn about how God's people respond to marching orders. So keep that in mind. I want you to see four realities about those who have marching orders. Number one, marching orders are to be received with urgency. Marching orders are to be received with urgency. Now, In verses 1 through 9, God gives Joshua his orders, his instructions. Then in verse 10 it says, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp, command the people, prepare your provisions. And so immediately we see Joshua act on this commandment from God, acting on his orders. Immediately, he doesn't delay. He says, hey, three days get provision together, and we're going to march. He doesn't say, hey, let's take a while and think about this. Let's try to kind of gather ourselves, collect ourselves, so we can be ready to march into the promised land. No, immediately, three days, get your stuff together. We are going to go. There is an urgency in obeying the orders God had given Joshua and God had given through Joshua to his people. And this is a big deal because when God gives us commandments... When God gives us orders, he wants urgent obedience. Because here's the deal. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Do you hear that? Delayed obedience is disobedience. When we, we put God off, when we say, well, maybe later, or I'll get around to that, or when life settles down, when we delay our obedience to God, we are disobeying God. And it's interesting to note that Joshua and the nation of Israel does not, they do not delay. They immediately began to put plans in place. I like what A.W. Pink writes. It is nothing but a species of hypocrisy for me to tell myself that I'm willing to obey God while I delay in doing so. For nothing hinders me but want of heart. Where there's a will, there's always a way. And so Pink is making the point that if you are delaying to obey God, it's a matter of your heart. The reason you're delaying is because you don't want to obey God. Where there's a will, there is a way. Charles Spurgeon 
writes, We are too often in haste to sin. Oh, that we may be in a greater hurry to obey God. Could you characterize your life as as being in a hurry to obey God? I mean, I know you're in a hurry. All our families are in a hurry these days. But are we in a hurry to obey? Are, Are we in a hurry to carry out the orders that God has given us? Delayed obedience is disobedience. And and we know this in other avenues in our society. For example, no parent appreciates delayed obedience. Can I get an amen? No commanding officer or ranking officer will stand for delayed obedience. That's just not how it works. When, When orders go forth, immediate obedience is expected. And when the Lord of the universe... The one who spoke creation into existence, who owns it all. When he gives commandments, when he gives orders, the appropriate response is immediate obedience, right? So marching orders are to be received with urgency, immediacy. Secondly, marching orders are to be carried out with organization, With organization. Now you say, it's not really exciting to talk about organization. But it's important. Because look what happens in verse 10. Joshua commanded the officers of the people. So Joshua is not a one-man show. Joshua has some officers that are subordinate that he gives instructions to. And then they go to smaller groups. They give instructions. And and leaders in that group go and give instructions to even smaller groups. And the, the orders are disseminated throughout the people of God. This is just basic organization. And it goes back to Exodus chapter 17. After Moses led Israel from Egyptian bondage and slavery, he's trying to lead this mass of people, this nation. And all of the disputes, all of the decisions are coming to Moses. And Moses is trying to keep up with it all, and he can't do it. And one day, his father-in-law named Jethro comes and visits. And he kind of watches what's transpiring. And he says to Moses, Moses, you can't keep up this pace. There's no way you can settle every dispute among millions of people. If you keep doing this, you're going to be overwhelmed and ineffective. And so Jethro suggests that Moses adds layers of leadership to deal with lesser disputes. And then, if a dispute comes up through the ranks and it doesn't get settled, then he'll deal with it. But there were people under him that could deal with the different issues that would arise. This is just basic, good organization. And it goes back to Exodus 17, and it took place even militarily, because there are officers in place to carry out orders. We see that there in verse 10. Now, organization is a big deal for at least three reasons. First of all, organization ensures greater effectiveness. When God gives orders to his people, he expects us to obey them. And to obey them, we often need to be organized. We need to be always organized. Because because obedience is not a one-man show. God never puts his expectations for people on one person. He expects his people to obey together. And that takes organization. It takes leadership at different levels of a people. And so organization ensures greater effectiveness because more people can do 
more together than one person can do by themselves, right? Hey, this is a big deal, because let me tell you what happened in the church in the latter part of the 20th century. In the church of the 20th century, churches began to hire out their work. And they began to hire very specialized staff members for very specialized things. And, and they would say, hey, listen, we hired you, get the job done. And the laity, by and large, took their seat on the sidelines and said, go staff, go. Can I tell you, an entire church can get more done than a staff can do by itself? Right? And so we need to all be in this together and be organized for greater effectiveness. Secondly, organization encourages more involvement. If more people are are in the game, then more people are involved in carrying out orders. And again, there's greater effectiveness in that. We We want everyone to be involved in God's work. And then third, organization engenders accountability. There are levels of leadership in an organization. Then leaders and people are, are accountable for the decisions they make and how they lead and how they treat people and, and their integrity. And so this is all very important, and it all comes with organization. It's interesting to note that, that as Joshua takes command, as he takes the reins of leadership, he begins to disseminate his orders through his officers. And as God's people today, when God gives us orders, we need to obey those orders in an organized fashion. There's an old Peanuts comic strip, and Lucy walks in the room and demands that Linus change the channel on the TV. And Linus decides he's going to stand up to this bully, his sister. And he says, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? Lucy answers, These five fingers. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. You know what Linus does? He turns the channel. And he walks away and he looks at his his hands. He says, why can't you guys get get organized like that? Why can't you get organized like that? Listen to me. As we think about God giving us commandments and orders, we need to be organized on the same page for effective obedience. There's a third thing here. Marching orders are to be received with urgency and carried out with organization. But third, they're to be followed with unity. They're to be followed with unity. Look in verse 12. Joshua says, To the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, toward the east. So what is going on here? Why is Joshua speaking specifically to the Reubenites, the Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh, these, these tribes of the people of Israel? Why these specific instructions? Well, to understand these instructions, you need to go back to Numbers 32 In Deuteronomy 3, and here's basically what happened. 
as the people of God approached the promised land in the Jordan River, they had to cross to, to go west into the promised land. Some of the tribes, tribe of Reuben, tribe of Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, who raised livestock, they said, this Joshua or Moses, this Moses is, is really good land for livestock. And I know God's given us the land beyond the Jordan River that we must cross, but what if we took possession of this land? Would that be okay? This is really good land. And Moses says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you suggesting that you begin to build your cities here and raise your livestock here and send the rest of your brothers, the rest of the tribes, over the river to fight by themselves? And Reuben and Gad and Manasseh say, no, 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 no. We're going to set up shop here and, and build some fortified cities and leave some people to protect our families. But then our fighting men will cross the Jordan with you and we will help you to fight. And Moses says, okay, if you do that, you cross the Jordan with us, you help us fight after the fighting is done, after we achieve victory, you can go back to the east where the sun rises, cross the Jordan River, reunite with your families, and enjoy that land in which to raise your livestock. That's what happens in Deuteronomy 3 and Numbers chapter 32. And, and here in this passage, Joshua's reminding them, here's the deal. You said you're going to go with us. You're going to help us fight. And look at how the people respond in verse 16. They answer, Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. And so these tribes of Israel were saying, we are with you. We're with our brothers. We're going to cross the Jordan. We're going to help you fight. And then we'll return to this land. And so we see there is unity. And this is, this is very important because it would take a united effort to accomplish such a monumental task. They had to go into the promised land. And there are all these pagan peoples, fierce people, who they would have to fight. And it was a big deal to have to fight these other armies. They would need everybody on the same page, united, fighting together to win. Monumental tasks call for great unity. And just like that was true for Joshua and the army here in this book, it's true for the people of God today. We have some monumental tasks, don't we? We have some daunting marching orders God has given us to, to change the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. And that's not easy, right? So if we're going to, to make headway, when it comes to obeying those orders, we need to do it together. Because a people who are united can accomplish more than a people who are fractured and splintered and murmuring and backbiting and gossiping. We've got to be together. Unity is a big deal. Listen to how Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. He says to the Father that they, his people, his disciples, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is saying the unity of your people has evangelistic implications. Your people will be more effective in reaching others when the world sees their unity what he means and so as the body of christ as the church as god's people today as a local assembly of believers called longview point 
if we're going to make headway when it comes to this monumental task of reaching our world, we've got to be on the same page. A group of people that are fussing and fighting never accomplished anything for the kingdom. We must be unified. A.W. Tozer makes this point with this illustration. 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other. The implication is clear. If we all fix our eyes upon Jesus, all of our hearts will be aligned. Because Jesus gives the same orders to everybody, amen? And so, if you keep your eyes upon Jesus, and I keep my eyes upon Jesus, instead of pursuing our own agendas, we will be on the same page, following Christ's marching orders for our church. And if we are unified, we will be more effective. It's a big, big deal. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of the church being a laughingstock because of fussing and fighting. I'm tired of going down a road and seeing Harmony Baptist Church and a few miles later seeing New Harmony Baptist Church. Some of you will get that later. When we are united, we are more effective and the world sees what Jesus can do through a group of people. And so if we're going to follow our marching orders, we must follow these marching orders with unity. But there's a fourth thing here. Marching orders are to be received with urgency, carried out with organization, followed with unity, and fourth, marching orders are inspired by vision. They're inspired by vision. Look what the Bible says there in verse 13. Joshua speaking to the Reubenites, the Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh says, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. So saying, hey, God's given you some land to possess, and it is meant for you to rest. And then look what it says until in, in verse 15. How long are they to fight? Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land. And so they're taking this promised land as a gift from God was, to, to, was described by God as rest. Now, what does God mean when he says, I want to give my people rest? What does, that, what does that mean? Well, to get the gist of this, turn to Deuteronomy with me very quickly. Right before Joshua. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Verse 10. He says, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit. So there's the idea of inheritance. And when he gives you rest from all your enemies, that means peace. No one's attacking them. So that you live in safety. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you. And then turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Verse 19. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And so again, we see these ideas of inheritance and freedom from fighting. 
peace. No enemies attacking them. So if you look there in your notes, the rest God offered was freedom from enemies as they enjoyed their inheritance. That's what the promised land was all about. Freedom from enemies as they enjoyed the land that God had given them to thrive in. That's what rest is all about. Now, rest is one of my favorite metaphors for salvation. Because this rest that God was going to give his people in the promised land is a picture, a symbol of greater rest. Let me say it like this. The rest God offered Israel is a picture of the ultimate rest we have in Christ. I want to show you that the rest of the promised land is symbolic in Hebrews chapter 4. So turn with me, Hebrews chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews makes this case. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest shall stand, still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them... But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And so here's what the Lord is saying. I offered my people, the Israelites, full rest. And they did not achieve full rest because they did not believe in my promises. Their, their, their hearing was not united by faith. They did not receive this gift. And then he says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. So he mentions the rest of the promised land that the people did not fully receive because they did not believe. Then he mentions his rest from his work on the seventh day of creation. And then in verse 6, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So he's saying the rest that the people of Israel were to enjoy in the promised land was not the final deal. It pictured the final deal. It pictured a greater rest that is yours and mine when we believe in Christ. Because look what it says in verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest, oh, I love this, has also rested from his works as God did from his. That is a metaphor of salvation. Rest is a picture of what it means to be saved, what it means to be born again, what it means to be in Christ. Because if you are born again, you are not striving to be saved, you are saved. You're not saved because you worked your way to God. You're saved because you received a free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And because you've received a free gift of grace, you're resting. You're at peace with God. You're not striving. You have hope in your life. You are at rest. It's a picture of salvation. You're looking at someone this morning who's at rest. I have a relationship with God, not because I'm good, but because Jesus did everything necessary to save me. And I've embraced him and accepted that free gift. So this idea of rest in the promised land is a picture, a symbol of the future rest that God gives everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. It's, let me say it like this. It's good to be saved. It's good to be saved. It's good to have peace with God. 
It's good to know that when death comes knocking at my door, that's not the end. It is a transition into heaven, into the very presence of God, and I will be there forever with him. That's rest. I'm not wringing my hands in worry. I'm at rest because of Jesus. And so this idea back in Joshua 1, hey, the reason we're crossing the Jordan, the reason we're going to fight is because God wants to give you rest. He wants to give you an inheritance and he wants you to enjoy that inheritance free from the attacks of other nations. It's a vision that Joshua reminds the people, hey, this is what it's all about. This is the end game. We're going to experience God's rest. And this vision fueled the the obedience in this passage of the nation of Israel. And you and I need to remember that a compelling vision fuels passionate obedience. See, if you find yourself living in complacency or apathy... Maybe it's because you've lost sight of the big picture. Maybe you've lost sight of what it's all about. We're not placed here, listen, we're not placed here to just go through the motions of religiosity. We are here to make much of Jesus. We are here to glorify His great name. Because one day the Bible says the glory of the Lord, Habakkuk 2, will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what it's all about. And the next time you find yourself flagging when it comes to obedience... When you find yourself weary and, and, you, and you don't want to continue serving Jesus, remember, it's not about you ultimately. It's about Him and His glory. And that vision of His greatness fuels your obedience. A compelling vision fuels passionate obedience. So marching orders are to be received with urgency. They're to be carried out with organization. They're to be followed with unity and inspired by vision. So here's the big question for you and me today. Okay, that's great for Joshua and the people of Israel in Joshua chapter 1. Are there any marching orders that God has for His people today? The church. Are we a people under orders? Are there some commandments God has given us that He wants us to? to obey? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. Let me just share with you some of those those commandments, some of those orders that God has for His people. Over in Matthew 22, a lawyer comes and speaks to Jesus and asks Him about the greatest commandment in the Old Testament. And Jesus responds by sharing with Him what we call the great commandments. He says, the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And then he says, the next is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know what? Those are marching orders for you and for me. We are commanded by God to love him supremely. And we're commanded by God to love other people. Now just imagine for a moment, if you and I took those orders seriously, how that could change things in our community. If we truly loved Jesus above all else, 
If we truly loved our neighbor, can you imagine the difference that would make? We are a people under orders. What about the Great Commission? The orders that the Lord has given us to go and share the good news with people who are lost and need to be saved. You see the Great Commission in every gospel account. For example, at the end of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all the peoples, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's our commission. In Mark, it it reads like this, Go and preach the gospel to every creature. That's pretty clear, right? Over in Luke, here's how Jesus says it. He says, It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In John, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so in all four Gospels, we are reminded of this commandment, these orders to go with the gospel to those that need to hear the good news. Those are our orders. Are we going to obey or are we not? I read an interesting uh, article and heard some interesting things these past few weeks about a way that you and I can make an impact right here in Hernando. We send teams all over the world. We commissioned a team uh, last service, getting ready to go to Texas. We're going to commission a team this service, getting ready to go to Boston. We're going to pray as we send them out. We've had three teams get back, two from South Asia and one from Southeast Asia. And we're sending people all over the world, all over North America. Praise the Lord for that. But we're also called to reach our Jerusalem, right? It's where ministry starts, right here in, in Hernando. And I read an interesting article about... People that are plugged into a local church. And the reason that they're there. And the numbers were stunning. Something like 90% of people that are plugged into a local church, serving, involved, are there in that church because someone personally invited them. It has very little to do with whether the preacher's wearing flip-flops or a three-piece suit. We like to think that matters. And, 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 and most people out there that are unchurched could just care less. Right? We think it's music style and all these preferential issues we think really makes a big difference. According to those who are unchurched but are now church, it doesn't. What makes a big difference is someone who cares enough about them to invite them to their church. And say, hey, come and sit beside me. I'll get you a cup of coffee, which is free in our lobby. Amen? And take you to lunch and meet you out front, whatever. But hey, come to my church. We want you to be there. Because when people come, they get to experience the warm fellowship of the, of the family of faith we call the, the point. They get to hear Christ honoring music where Jesus Christ is lifted up. They hear the gospel of Jesus Christ from the pulpit and in their connect groups. And, and that makes a difference. God uses that to change lives. So one very practical thing you and I can do to obey our marching orders is simply invite people to come to our church. 
And then as we're out and about in the community, we look for divine appointments. We share our story about how we were saved. We share his story. We share the gospel. We start new evangelistic groups and home. I mean, that's how it works. We are a people under orders. The Great Commission certainly is something that you and I are called to radically obey. I could go all day with marching orders from God's word for his people. What about Romans 12? Where Paul writes, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of service. Then he says, listen, be not conformed to this world. but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That Greek word translated conformed means to be pressed into a mold. And Paul's saying, in light of all that Jesus Christ has done for you, don't let the world and its agenda press you into its mold. You're called to be different. And the word he uses is transformed, which comes from the Greek word that we say uh, metamorphosis comes from. Be transformed like a, like a caterpillar's transformed into a, a butterfly. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be pressed into a mold. Let Jesus change your life and let your changed life shine brightly in this dark world. Those are marching orders. You and I are called to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I read this past week and seen it all over the place about a movie that's coming out I was excited about going to with my family that's pressing a social agenda and it's disheartening and we're not going to go we're not going to put ourselves under that because we don't want to be we don't want to be conformed to the mold of this world we want to stand on God's word and believe that what God says is best what God says about our life is what's best we stand on that and we claim that and we live in that because we're not conformed. We are, we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's not optional. Those are marching orders. And so, yes, you and I have orders. When we call Jesus Lord, we are reminded that we are a people living under order. So here's the, here's the point I want you to walk away with today. God's people have marching orders that should be immediately and passionately obeyed. God's people have marching orders that should be immediately and passionately obeyed. We say it around our house like this. We want you to obey us as parents immediately with a happy heart. And and that's what God's looking for. As He gives us orders... He wants us to respond with urgency immediately with a joyful heart because there's nothing as thrilling as following Jesus wherever he leads.